Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. My parents were doctors. They taught me deal with the world the way it is, not the way that you thought it was. And also don't confuse the symptom with the underlying issues. So once you've been outmaneuvered and you've lost that battle, don't waste additional resources or troops putting into a battle you can't win. You've got to move on to the next battle and get your next goal in mind. So that's what we build at Cisco. The legendary Silicon Valley CEO who over 20 years grew Cisco from a little router company into an internet colossus that was briefly worth a half a trillion dollars. Stay with us. Full disclosure, listeners, Sunday, November 10th at Richmond's historic National Theater, Full Disclosure Live presents an evening with Not A Surf, one of my favorite rock bands on 25 years of glory, of collapse, of rebuilding, of grit, of coming out and hustling their name back into the big time. A live recording, hear the stories, then hear the music. The band's going to perform a full concert. You can get your tickets at facebook.com slash full D radio. You could go to the Nationals website. You could go to notasurf.com. Definitely do not miss it. November 10th at the National in RVA. Full disclosures, evening with Not A Surf. Hear the stories, then hear the music. Join us. Joining me from NPR in Manhattan are the co-authors of Connecting the Dots, John Chambers, who was for a long time the CEO of Cisco, the networking equipment company out west that was so key to the build-out of the information superhighway, and his co-author on the book, Diane Brady, former editor and correspondent at Business Week. How are you? We're both great. John's the one, I think, who's been um, on, the, on the trail, so to speak. Well, from my perspective, I'm having a blast. It's uh, like having kids with these startups and having uh, together authored this book. Uh, I hope that people really like it. I think it talks about a startup nation and where we're going to go. So I think we're in great shape at this end. And 14 months together, that wasn't bad, Diane. (laughs) Let me add, John Chambers is now at JC2 Ventures, which you describe as a purpose-driven VC firm dedicated to helping disruptive startups from around the world grow and scale. But I want to take you back, Mr. Chambers, to the term of the century. And people Please call f- me John. Mr. makes me sound old and formal. I'm trying not to be either John, one. John, let's take you back to 2000, the heady days of sure. March 2000. I know you're accosted and buttonholed about this endlessly, but Cisco, the baby that you lorded over in those 20 years, since you joined in 1991, you grew this company from $70 million in revenue and 400 employees to $47 billion in revenue and 75,000 employees by the time you left. What was it, 2015? You stepped down as CEO. Mm -hmm. We we know now that Cisco achieved a maximum market cap of about $620 billion in March 2000. I'm asking you, um, and you're very candid in this book, how often do you go back to that moment and say, if I could go back in time, I would have bought something else, I would have taken money off the table, I would have raised money, I would have pinched myself that I was in this rarefied kind of historic bubble and steered the company differently because subsequent to that, the stock fell 90%. Well, first of all, it may surprise you that in my view about both Cisco and my leadership style, I don't spend a lot of times looking backwards. Uh, I've never been to a graduation in my career, not high school, uh, college, uh, law school, business school, or going away party. I tend to always look for what's next as we move forward. I do believe in learning from the challenges you face. And when we grew 60 to 70% growth per year for a decade, you didn't get there by not taking risk. And while I wish I'd been smart enough to avoid it, I learned in terms of what the issues were. We emerged out of that downturn stronger than any of our peers, and almost all of them crashed and never got back up. And much like your listeners, when you talk about your listeners with their children, it's how you handle not your successes when they get good marks in school or score a goal in soccer. It's how do they handle their setbacks. So during the time at Cisco, I probably had six or seven major setbacks. This was a very visible one. The major thing I would have changed in terms terms of lessons learned uh, is that I believe my data too much. The data said in the first week of December, we were growing at 70% per year. And our data had been unbelievably accurate for a decade. And so even though there were puffs of warning signals around us, the numbers were very solid. By the third week in January, it was minus 30% growth. 25% of the customers disappeared. 
So what did I learn on that? Uh, not to get surprised and let data alone lead my direction. So when the Great Recession came in 2008, we actually saw it in 2007. We said to the market, there's something wrong in the financial institutions. They said, well, Cisco, you've normally gotten this right, but I think you're wrong on this. It must be a problem with your execution. I said, I don't think so. There's something not right in the market. We were more conservative this time. I immediately took my foot off the gas and got prepared if there was a slowdown, which I thought there was coming, uh, we could navigate through it very well, and we did through 2008. So at a time that many other companies actually withdrew, moved away from the market, we extended credit to every major automobile company around the world for our equipment and direction, and we built relationships for life. So the key takeaway to me, Robin, is very simple. You don't get on top by not taking risk. By definition, some of those risks work, some were not. It's always a portfolio play. And my only regret is probably that I didn't dream bigger or take more risk on it. When did you realize after you joined this company that something was really different this time? I'm struck by uh, these old minutes of President Clinton's Council of Economic Advisors that they completely did not see the Internet coming. But Al Gore did. In 1993. <laughs> they were talking about the overhang from the SNL crisis and what is going to take us out of this. And and my memory is I, I just remember starting college yeah. in 1994 and everybody said, you should go down to the computer lab because there's email waiting for you. And I yes. had a friend at Wake Forest who shot me an email and then I discovered Netflix. Netscape and Mosaic and all this stuff. And we know that everything after that is kind of this really blurry haze. Everything was happening at light speed and you guys were clearly at the hub. Well, when I first got surprised, just to go back a step, uh, it was the first day at work at Cisco. Uh, when I got there, they were a very small company with almost no structure, and they actually put me in a wiring closet uh, where my office was until they got a desk for me. And I thought about calling my wife and said I made a terrible mistake. And then by the end of the day, they had a customer problem. I walked down to customer service and I knew I was at home because I then began to talk about customers, about where we were going in the direction. So to answer your question, uh, within a very short time, I moved us from selling routers to selling the future of the Internet. And even though the Clinton administration might have missed a little bit on the front end, I was on stage with President Clinton at the White House uh, in terms of their press room uh, talking about the power of the Internet and how it would dramatically change this country's future. President Clinton got that. And it was an honor. And I was really intimidated as a young CEO with President Clinton on one side and Vice President Gore on the other side. And I was the business speaker about how this was going to change. Uh, fast forward to the end of that decade. 22.5 million jobs, new jobs created, 34% growth in GDP, 24% growth in real per capita income. So that was the last time America got a raise until very recently. So it was seeing what this meant and not talking about it in techie terms and email. And interestingly enough, Netscape as an example, I gave them their title. We own the uh, trademark on that. And uh, when Mark Andreessen called me up and said, I've got a problem, I said, it's yours uh, on that. So uh, it is a market of explosion and one that took me a little while to understand. But once it did, we went for the gold and we went for it aggressively. And like I said earlier, no regrets. We had great competitors. By the way, they're all gone. Well, one <laughs> of the things I find interesting is uh, when did you do that? The internet will change the way, I always mix it up, the way um, the, world the world works, lives, learns, plays. and plays. Because there was some debate. I found it interesting that there was actually, you know, you got internal pushback on that, even yes. in terms of how you phrased it. So, I mean, that was interesting that you saw it as more transformative even than some of your staff. Well, one of the things that Dan does so well in helping me write the book and writing it together is she gets me to tell stories to accomplish the points. I tend to go to the key net you know, what's the bottom line, uh, the takeaway. And it is the realization that even my best marketing people and my best engineers didn't want me to say we're moving from selling routers to we're really going to transform every aspect of our lives with the internet. Yet I felt very strongly we needed to go that way and steer the company very strongly in that direction. And to the team's credit, once they understood what I was trying to do, everybody got behind it and the rest of it, you, you see the results. May I ask you um, 
you know, going back to the time when everything did plunge, you were still a massively capitalized company. And it still is today. It's worth about $220 billion. But I covered telco at the turn of the century. It's amazing we're saying turn of the century, but I always invoke that now to make me sound more graybeard than I actually am. More experienced. But we know Nortel is no longer, Lucent is no longer. And there was such a parlous time in 2001 and 2002 that Vendor financing was all the rage. There were a handful of haves in the world of tech that could effectively play God, that could come out and say, you know what, I have to pick out who the ones are who are going to survive. You were a cash-rich company. You had the balance sheet. You had the stamina, the wherewithal. How many people came to you and said, listen, throw us a lifeline? How many? I mean, there were C-Lex, as you know, B-Lex, D-Lex, R-Lex, and a huge shakeout that, that ensued. Well, uh, first of all, uh, to your question, we did have over $2 billion in vendor financing out, which we wrote down. Uh, and that's the risk you take. Uh, in terms of almost everybody who went under, and 25% of my customers disappeared. So out of those, all those alphabet soup that you went through, almost all of them didn't stop ordering. They went bankrupt. And so we were selective about where we went. But the key takeaway, Robin, is you know, each time you get knocked down, uh, you understand what knocked you down to get back up. 2007, I did the reverse. I understood why I got knocked down in 2000 and 2001, what I was going to do different, and then went out and literally financed my customers' growth. Did the same thing in the Asian financial crisis in 1997-98. So I'm a risk taker by nature. You don't win by not taking risk. And it's funny, every time that we talk about the acquisition strategy at Cisco as an example, I tell everybody that if we make two out of three work, it'll be the best batting average in the world, which it is. And I think almost every major company will tell you we are the best in acquisitions in the whole industry segment. And yet I'll get criticized in the one third. And I kind of look at somebody when they do that and say, I told you that was going to happen. It's a portfolio play. And I've made all these billion dollar acquisitions work. Uh, I think it's 12 over 1 billion. I'll get criticized for a $600 million one that didn't work. And I look at people and say, I'm a little bit confused by this. It's much like my venture capital mode today uh, that is startups, and I help them grow very aggressively. And I expect at least a third of them not to make it. In mm -hmm. fact, the best portfolios in venture capital, usually the ones that have the best return, have more than half of their startups uh, not make it, crash and burn, because they take good risk. Uh, I hope to do dramatically better than that time will say. Uh, whether we did or did not, sure. but you never get on top by not taking risk. And the same is true of political leaders around the world, people I admire, like Prime Minister Modi, taking huge risk in India about digitizing his country before most people could even say what digitizing was. And I'm honored to be one of his advisors on doing that, also a chairman of the U.S.-India Strategic Partnership Forum that is how our businesses and governments work together. And then President Macron in France, who I think is truly amazing, digitizing his country, taking the risk to say we're going to become a startup nation again. After all, the French invented the word entrepreneurial. And it was time for that country to transpose, transform itself going forward. So uh, I look for strong leaders. I look for leaders who take appropriate risk. And by definition, when you take risks, some of them will not work. So sure. I have no regrets. I wish I'd taken more more risk. And I wish I'd been smart enough to, to get a hit each time we get up to bat. As we all know, that doesn't happen. I have I have regrets in my life. You know, many women tried to ask me out in college, and I was just too busy with my studies. And it's so heartbreaking yeah. to go and back to college are. reunions and say, I'm sorry, but my <laughs> ship has sailed. Don't tell your wife that. Oh, she's going to hear it on this show. Oh, Diane, okay. I'd, love, I'd love the part of the book where you guys talked about Steve Jobs as frenemy, Diane. Now, I'm taking you back to 2007 when Mr. Jobs visited Business Week, where you were an editor, with his newfangled iPhone in hand. It was kind of risible, wasn't it, this idea that Apple wanted to sell you a phone? Yes, yes. I, I remember the, was it the earlier cover where he looked like an elephant. He was holding up the... And he, he went in there. Business Week was the last place he visited on his road show. I think As he was partial does. to you know Fast Company and Fortune and other places. But this is something that totally, totally, totally changed the world. And if you were to look at the, the arc of the internet and the, the, the traffic and um, all the parts, and you talk about vendor financing and everything, it was all sucked in by kind of, uh, you, know, you know, Apple. And um, I like how you, you wrote about this in that moment with the flip camera, which very few people seem to realize that Cisco owned. I remember coming into Grand Central every morning uh, in the late aughts, and it was plastered with 
flip ads, Cisco ads. And in fact, I own two of them. You know, I filmed my my son's first two years of life with that flip camera. Uh, but it was completely and utterly disrupted by by one man putting ridiculous video functionality on the phone. Talk to me about that. I guess what's interesting to me about this is one thing that I've I feel I have learned from this book. I've learned many things from working with John, but I think to have to make the speed of deciding when to um, cut your losses, I think is very important. I think it was that moment when um, Jobs stood up and there was no urgency around killing the flip. It was still very profitable. It had a huge market share. You could have sort of squeezed it for quite some time. And so I think what I really admire about that moment in particular, even though it's sometimes cast as, you know, one of the ones that clearly didn't work out as well as some of the others, is the fact that um, John killed it, you know, on the spot. That was almost what made news was the fact that it was killed so suddenly, so swiftly, and so clearly in reaction to what Apple was doing, you know, takes chutzpah. And uh, I think that is one of the things that I realize with leaders um, it's easy to say yes, and maybe not always easy to say yes, but I think some of the hardest parts is when you say no and when you say um, kill it to something that nobody else sees as dying. John, I mean, what was that foray into hardware like for you, consumer hardware? Because this is the quintessential, to my mind, enterprise infrastructure company. I mean, it worked behind the scenes. It was the the toll keeper, the road builder of the information superhighway. But that was such a rare foray into our individual lives. I mean, something I used with my infant son. Um, talk to me about bringing that to life and then also having to kill it. I know you're asked about this ad nauseum, but again, it was your very consumer-facing product. Well, first, just to give you a little bit of background uh, on it, uh, Cisco started off just as a router company. And when I did forays and bought switching company, everybody said, you're outside your expertise. Yet we have probably today 50 to 60% market share in switching uh, 25 years later. Uh, and so I've always been very open to taking good business risk. And when they don't work out, uh, I say, what could we have learned from it? Make a very tough decision and move on. We'd actually already been very successful in the home with video set-top boxes. And the home was clearly set up. Is there going to be a concentration point, both for wireless capability and for video capability? And I felt that home video was as important as entertainment video. So we took a good risk. And then when the risk didn't work out and Canley Steve uh, Jobs did a very nice job of outmaneuvering me, I very quickly realized he had me and I moved on. The mistake that so many people make, and we did this to competitor after competitor, is once we had them, instead of moving on to the next game, they made the mistake of staying with a hand that wasn't going to win. And so my parents taught me very early on that market transitions, whether they occur in West Virginia or in Boston 128, that used to be the Silicon Valley of the world and is no more, and true Silicon Valley today, you've got to constantly reinvent yourself. And you've got to have the courage to take the risk, knowing that when you miss, you're still going to get criticized, even though you told people you're going to miss a certain percentage of the time. And I, I you, know, you, you might be able to help me on this, but you know, Flip was $600 million. It didn't make my top 20 acquisitions. And yet people hold that up as the example. Well, your acquisition strategy, there were problems with it. You know, with all, all respect, and I love constructive criticism, and I've done some things wrong that I, if I had them to do over again, I would do different business-wise. That was not one of them. Mm -hmm. I took a risk about going into the consumer marketplace. I have no regrets about it. Would I have done it differently now? Oh, yeah, I would have taken Flipshare, the video into the cloud, and then moved quickly to put it on everybody's smartphone. And maybe in that way, we might have been able to outmaneuver uh, uh, Steve, who I actually have tremendous respect for. And if you watch what I've always done, my parents were doctors. They taught me deal with the world the way it is, not the way that you thought it was. And also, don't get confused, the symptom with the underlying issues. So once you've been outmaneuvered and you've lost that battle, don't waste additional resources or troops putting into a battle you can't win. You've got to move on to the next battle and get your next uh, goal in mind. So that's, that's what we build at Cisco. Now, if you think I took risk at Cisco, watch what I do with these startups. 
we're going to try to change the world one more time because startups are where all the job creation will occur in the U.S. and around the world. And startups in the U.S., we think we're a startup nation. We are not anymore. We're not in the top 10 on innovation. And our startups are almost at a 20-year low at the time countries like France are going up 5x in three and a half years. So I'm trying to focus on changing the world one more time uh, to do this in a fun way and to be an example for how to do it. And as we've always done at Cisco, being very good at giving back at the same time. As you know, we, we won most every corporate social responsibility award there is, both from the U.S. government, Democratic leadership, Republican leadership, from governments in Asia, governments in China, et cetera. And so if I can play a small role in helping the U.S. put a, a person on the moon and get the startup engine going back at probably three to four times the rate we're doing now, that would be kind of fun to do at this stage of my life. Full disclosure on Robin Farzad, you're listening to John Chambers, former CEO and chairman of Cisco Corporation, where under his watch, I mean, the company grew at a decade of 65% year-over-year growth uh, of sales with headcount doubling every 18 months. He was there between 1991 and, and 2015 is when you stepped down as CEO? Yes. And Diane Brady, his co-author on the book, Connecting the Dots. Uh, John, I'd love for you to take me, you know, in, in, to the extent that this company was so built on mergers and acquisition, and you guys had to think and fail often and spend often and, um, you know, cut your losses and fish and cut bait and throw any metaphor you want at it. How did you think about your relationship with Wall Street? I could imagine that you were always had pitch books of people coming up at you and saying, you know, this is a $650 billion company at its peak. I'd love to pitch them on this and, and this divestiture and this sort of recap and everything. How did you get into that mindset of kind of, listen, I can apply very simple management rules and rules of skepticism, but at the same time, I need people to feel me, to, to, to feed me deal flow and to give me good tips. So uh, to answer your question, uh, quite candidly, uh, we developed our own strategy on acquisitions. Uh, we developed what Dan uh, helped me really bring to life in terms of the book, a replicatable innovation playbook for everything we did from how we do acquisitions to how we handle economic downturns to how we recruit people, uh, et cetera, and to how we give back in society with our corporate social responsibility. And so it was entirely driven by customers. Uh, my customers told me who to buy. Uh, the first acquisition we did, a company called Crescendo, Ford Motor Company told me about a new technology and switching called Ethernet switching, and I didn't understand what it was, and I asked them to explain it to me, and they did, and then two weeks later, I was at Boeing, and they said, there's this new switching technology that's coming out that we think's key, and I said, I know, it's Ethernet switching, and uh, uh, you know, can I have my order now? And they said, you can get it only if you acquire a company called Crescendo. And so it is the willingness to be in customer-driven. Uh, I have lots of weaknesses in life, but getting market transitions are my strength and the ability to connect the dots, if you will, or to see the patterns start to develop, always driven by customers. Almost never do we acquire a company because an investment bank from Wall Street came to us and said, this company's uh, for sale. Our customers told us who to buy, including even Flip uh, and including many of the acquisitions we did. And so there was only one Steve Jobs. He just had an instinct and it was amazing about what to build and how to get there. And it took him still seven years to do it. Uh, at Cisco, we were driven by our customers and we used acquisitions as one of the key growth areas. We continued to build on routing and to lead that field uh, even today with over 50% market share in most all categories of routing. And then we moved into new areas like switching and we got similar market share or even more there. So that's the replicatable machine that we went with. And to your point, a lot of people said, well, take out debt, uh, do this huge merger acquisitions. I don't believe mergers among equals work. And our two peers who did this at various stages Early on, a Wellfleet and Synoptics uh, merged together after we bought Crescendo, and we took my top two competitors down, and then it was a gift from heaven when Alcatel merged with Lucent, and both of them got taken down. So we developed these innovation playbooks, these golden rules, if you will, for each category, and then we stick pretty closely by them. What that allows you to do is move with speed. I would have described that as bureaucracy when I first got to Cisco, and I realized it's the reverse. If you're really going to move and to do things that most people have not been able to do, and you're going to do it very rapidly, uh, the only way to do it is to have a replicatable playbook, something your viewers would get. 
I got a call on a Thursday night uh, from Al Berkeley, the head of NASDAQ, and he said, John, and he worded it nicer than this, but he said, basically, you're an idiot. And uh, I said, okay, I'll buy that, Al. What did I do wrong? And he said, there's a major company about to be bought by your competitors. This is public knowledge in the market, and it's, and you guys aren't even in there. And I said, do you really think I should own this company? He said, absolutely. And I asked him the name of it, and he told me the name. And I was embarrassed because I didn't know what they did. <laughs> and uh, But I trusted Al. And this is where customers tell you what to do if you just listen. I called up my head of business development that night. Good news is he didn't know what they did either, so I felt a little bit better. I asked him to go over and, and meet with the president of this company the next morning. He called me up after an hour and said, John, you got to get over here. I went over met with the president of the company, went through his business strategy, his product strategy. We had a handshake by noon for a $3 billion acquisition. Uh, we had it announced and through both boards by Monday morning to the marketplace. That is about an innovation playbook. It's about taking risk. Now, if it hadn't worked, would, would people have been pretty tough on me? Yeah, but that's what leadership's about. If you haven't got the passion, if you're not willing to take risks, you can't lead in this world. And if people are always worried about somebody second-guessing when they miss, you know, and think what Babe Ruth would have done if he went up to the bat each time being worried about second-guessing each time he struck out, which he did, by the way, a lot. And yet he was one of our greatest baseball players of all time. So business leaders have to be willing to take good business risk. If you don't, you're going to be roadkill and left behind. This is a market where you disrupt or be disrupted, and unfortunately, it's moving very fast. And I'm proud of what we built at Cisco. Would I do some things over if I had time and had the facts ahead of me? Absolutely. But do I regret taking any of the risks? No, I would not change that. I'd take more risk. Diane Brady, yes? when I read this book, I'm also thinking about the parallel investments in human capital and scaling a company from a, you know, couple hundred people to 70,000 people. At some point, you do have to kind of let go of the reins and say, I'm delegating this to tens of dozens of other people and, a, and an HR system and a system of checks and balances. And that is fraught with a loss of control. Kind of comment on that and some of the other companies where you've, where you've talked to founders and, and CEOs and chairmen and, and the opportunity cost and the difficulty of recruiting and retaining the right people. I think I I think yeah, and I wasn't there. Obviously, I was uh, no, you know, I wasn't in this sort of heyday of of having to recruit that many people. But it does go back, you know, to John's earlier point. I think this is one of the takeaways of the book for me is this power of the playbook, and I distinguish it from process because it's you know when you say HR. I immediately get sort of depressed and look at the ground and think of 17 forms I have to fill out and and formulas. And I think what's different about this that I is different from GE. You know, we you've covered it. I've covered companies like GE. A lot of companies have initiatives and they have, um, you know, they may even have a big idea that they drive through the whole company. I think Jack Welch was brilliant at that. The difference, yes, the difference, I think, with this for me was it was almost like a sports team and. Um, you were a big intramural athlete, weren't you? Or that was your, yeah, your I was gift. Good at all sports, not <laughs> real good at any. But it's it's this idea of taking best practices and then distilling it down to, you know, six or seven key ideas that everybody follows. And you know, can that eliminate? You know, does that mean that perhaps you know you eliminate some good possibilities? Probably, but what it does is it imposes a discipline on everybody. And I think with HR, that's a classic example where. It's it's not possible to put together. Let's just take you know the. I think the CEO's role is less about the sheer volume of people coming through the door to seventy five thousand. It's about that leadership team. And John, you had as much of a playbook for how you put together a team that complements each other as you did for how you acquire a company. And that's different. I gotta say, I've not encountered that mindset. And personally, I find it very useful because it is logical. We should probably all do it. And frankly, we don't. We have rules, but they're not always they're not always based on the reality of what actually works and doesn't. You know, Diane hit on a, a key point here. You have to know when to change the rules. And you have to know when the strategy got you where you are today can't take you to the next level, whether you're a leader of two people or a leader of 100,000. But it goes back to leadership overall, and, and I think the CEO, she or he, has four things to do in the company. True of whether it's my leadership at Cisco or this is what I train all of the 16 companies that I've invested in currently. The CEO sets the vision and strategy for the company. 
They develop, recruit, retain, and change the leadership team to implement that. They set the value of the culture, which is the thing that I think you're alluding to here. And then they communicate all the way above. And communication in today's world with social media is even more important. This is what I love teaching others to do. And for me, our culture at Cisco, people ask why we were successful. Uh, In part, we got market transitions right. In part, we put together products and focused on outcomes, what the internet could do in changing your life as opposed to selling routers or switches. Uh, In part, because we built one of the best leadership team, but in part because we were an unbelievably strong culture that focused on customers. I knew every illness of every employee in the company uh, that was life-threatening, every one of their spouse, every one of their children. It was common for me on a weekend to be on the phone with a parent or even a child uh, that uh, was going through very, very difficult times. And yet we, we... came together as a family, and I do refer to Cisco as a family, and I try to teach that to the startups. And as a family, we were unbeatable. I mean, when you think about it, we never really got beat on a large scale on any of our core product areas, but we were good on market transitions. We built a strong family, and we're far from perfect, and we'd make mistakes, and we'd argue like a family. But when you put those values in place, those replicatable playbooks, people run the extra mile for you. At Cisco, anybody could have left for double the pay. Yeah, maybe 50% increase. (laughs) And uh, yet our attrition rate in the valley where it averaged in low teens, the industry, we were at 5%. And acquired companies normally run 20% loss of their top leaders and top engineers per year when you acquire them. We ran at 4%. So we tended to acquire companies to fit into our culture. Uh, We were not a perfect company, nor was I anywhere near a perfect leader. And I have the scars to show both sides. But what we did, though, was know how to maintain ownership over the key values of the company and the strategy, but then to empower as you got bigger. And this might shock your readers. The strategy that you employ with a company of 200 people doing a startup trying to disrupt others is not dramatically different than one with 75,000 people in terms of getting the market transitions right, having the courage to move, and then listen to your customers on how do you do it and how do you get that replicatable playbook, including culture, to be a part of it. It's a, you know, it's interesting as you're talking about family, I'm thinking of the Netflix, you know, the, the what is there? There's, it's the opposite. It's like you're, um, you're expendable. We're, the, we're the A team, you know, and you're yeah. either in or out. Do you think, I'm curious whether the whole sort of family ethos, does it play differently today or is it just Yeah, that's actually, different? John, I believe, believe, you know, I worked with Diane for a long yeah. time and she read my mind. It seems like so many people are yes. expendable right now, that it's nothing personal. We survived this yeah. awful financial crisis, that there's a kind of a fungibility out there. People are free agents. They're working out of co-working spaces. It seems like what you're talking about is almost kind of a, a quaint notion from the late 90s. I respectfully disagree. And I think every company has to decide what its culture is. And you may like the culture, you may not, but you never have really strong cultures without really strong companies without really strong cultures. And the CEO, she or he has to own that culture. And so one of the things I'm doing with these startups is building that family of culture. And there's nothing more exciting to me when I watch a young 32-year-old CEO who gets vision and strategy and he's awesome, he's brilliant, and he's building a good leadership team and sometimes I can help him recruit that team and he's learning how to communicate better, but I'm not feeling he's getting the culture. And then all of a sudden he gets it. And if he truly or she really truly believes his family, it is so powerful. And if I could give that first learning curve to them, I would. But when you see a young CEO come back and say, John, I was amazed. I said, here's our culture and I own it. And we are a family. We take care of our own. And when somebody has a terrible family crisis, he extended himself to that person and really cared and helped. And it made him uncomfortable the first time he did it, as as you would expect it does. And then the person affected came back two weeks later and she said, I've been in a number of companies First time I ever felt this company cared about me. You give me a world-class team of real talent with a clear vision of where to go and how to get there. And you build a culture that is not perfect, but boy, we got each other's backs and we win as a team or we lose as a team. I'll take that team every day and I'll take any new competitor on. And I intend to do that with these startups uh, on it. So 
I like your nudge, and I think Netflix is a tremendous company, and they are a professional team, and they make no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's an up or out type of approach mm-hmm. uh, on it. Uh, I'm, my view is I want to be more like the Warriors. If you're a basketball fan mm-hmm. where the team cares more about winning and passing 130 times in a game uh, than who gets the most pay or who gets the most points. And I think if you build a team with top talent who plays as a family and truly cares – and you take on a team of all-stars, I think the first will beat the second most all the time. And that, to me, is fun. Well, John Chambers, I'd love for you to channel your kind of newfangled venture capitalist status right now. I mean, you are a billionaire venture capitalist. And suppose I bump into you into the Salesforce.com, in in the Salesforce.com lobby or the Transamerica lobby in San Francisco, and I was like, okay, it's me and John Chambers in the elevator. I got 30 seconds to make a pitch. And I was like, uh, yeah, hi, Mr. Chambers. I believe we once did CNBC together. Congratulations. It was a great run. Blah, blah, blah. But um, here's my idea. I just want to tell you that I have isolated this strain of Haas avocado that grows in all sorts of soil environments on the East Coast. You could grow it indoors, outdoors. It's scalable. It's this, this, this. What can you kind of shoot into my pitch Right then you, and there. You get the twenty elevator. bucks, Robin. <laughs> no, it's a great question because, to your point, one of the mistakes that all startups make uh, is first call me John, and if they if they know me, that's what I'd expect. Uh, it, you've got to get your elevator pitch down, and by the way, that means a thirty second version and a three minute version. The first thing you have to do is say, "Here's where I'm going." Second thing is, "Here's how I'm different." Third thing is, here's what I'd like for you to do. And fourth thing, just take a look and give me your feedback. And so it doesn't matter to me whether I'm talking to a head of a country about here's what's possible. I outline it the same way, a very tight synopsis of what we're trying to do. And I talked to literally my last trip to France, I talked to 250 startups in five days. So I'm used to seeing the startups pitch and I actually try to help them. It should be, here's how we convey what our our vision is. It should be, here's how we're different. Because if you're doing the same thing others have done, you're not going to survive. So suppose it piqued your interest enough for you to hit the exit button. Then we get out at, say, the 34th floor or something. And you're like, so tell me more. You actually have this Haas avocado. How would you tease it out from you? How would you mentor me to kind of sculpt well, that, that into a 30-second pitch? Yeah. I, Dan's leading me to the right answer. No, I'm not. That's, I, that's the cricket. Yeah. But it's, it's, it happens all the time. So when I see something that's really fascinating, the first thing I ask them is, tell me who your customers are. The second thing I say is, I'm not going to back you. But I will meet with you again in a quarter. Uh, I will share with you leadership styles. You get to tell me ahead of time what you want to know. And you can ask things as we go through it. And let me coach you. If you do well there, then do it again one quarter after that. And to Dan's point, that's exactly, exactly how I got into crickets. You know, I had no intention of being in advanced ag tech. And I thought cricket farming was like traditional farming. I cricket didn't realize farming. Cricket yep. farming. Yeah, because I, I see it at the health food store. It's a growth protein, area. Cricket yeah. flour cookies. That's probably Assure's product uh, and uh, Aspire's product. And Mohammed Assure is the CEO, did an amazing job. So he did a very good job. But it also goes back to when I came to Silicon Valley, I didn't understand the Valley and I knew I didn't. I'd come out of the East Coast and there was a reason that Boston 128 fell behind. We were just not moving fast enough. We didn't have the ecosystem moving with the speed between the VCs and MIT and the risk-taking of the companies, et cetera. And because of that, a 1,000 companies literally disappeared. Uh, When I came to the Valley, I knew what I knew. And I usually know what I don't. I might not admit it even to Diane, but (laughs) I do know what I don't know. So I I called up Lou Platt at HP, the original startup in the Valley, most people's view, a really good company. And I asked Lou, could I meet with him? And to my surprise, he said yes. And at the end of the first meeting, can I meet with you next quarter? And to my surprise, he did. And we met every quarter for three years. And he actually helped coach me through this. At the end of it, Cisco was on a run. I said, mm-hmm. all right, let me get back to HP. What can I do to help you, Lou, and HP? You know what he said? What did he say? Do it for the next generation. Mm-hmm. So I have. I've coached a number of CEOs, some of which are public about my coaching, some of which are not. I do it today, especially in diversity, geographic, and gender. Uh, and I do it with the startups. So I believe in giving back. And when you get something down, that's what I'm trying to do with this book. And Dan helped bring it to life. She she taught me how to tell the stories better. I tend to get to the bottom line way oh, too you're, quickly. You're pretty good no. to begin with. Uh, we did it well <laughs> together. That's what a team is about. But it's am I able and are we able together to when somebody reads this, this is their go-to book in their personal life for how you handle setbacks, 
or dyslexia. Uh, it's how you reinvent yourself. It's how you have the courage. And if you're crazy enough to be a leader, it's how you have to realize that leadership is lonely. And don't get into that kitchen unless you're willing to be lonely and unless you're willing to be second-guessed, even though you tell people, I'm going to miss a certain number. And that's what I hope this book is. Uh, it's something that Diane and I created that I hope will be a go-to book for any person about leadership, uh, whether you're in government or business, or you're a first-line manager, or you're a student wanting to get ahead. And you can tell me, uh, Robin, after you read it, what you really think, and do you think we achieve that goal or not? Well, I'd love to ask you, Diane, what you think about the lessons within this in, t- in terms of what Silicon Valley has turned into now. You have um, Facebook is kind of king of the hill. Clearly, Microsoft is resurgent. Uh, the the other players such as Google and the hegemony there in the cloud and, and Salesforce now, you know, stepping up and buying Time magazine, Mark Benioff did. Um, there isn't a lot of love for Silicon Valley these days. It seems like there's a lot of hate watching. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting. I, I think there's still a lot of admiration for Silicon Valley. And I suppose when you do have billionaires, you know, buying bunkers in New Zealand for the apocalypse, that doesn't help your case much. But that said, I feel like the 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 challenge has just been that it's not a case of a rising tide for everybody else. And there is this disconnect when you see the sheer amount of money that is being made. And unlike a Cisco, a lot of these companies aren't 75,000 people. They are companies where you can have billionaires, like the two guys that just the co-founders of Instagram, they were valued at a billion when I think they had less than 20 people. And so there is this sense that somehow um, it's, that you can't win. And so that's, that's the, I think the issue is partly to do with Silicon Valley. It's certainly, you know, do we care about privacy? Yes, but I don't think we care the way Europeans care. I think we'd happily, you know, sell our information for a seat upgrade or a couple of bonus points on Amazon. It's that we want to feel like we're partaking of the riches. And that is sort of the fundamental core of the American dream. And um, one of the things about Silicon Valley is this beautiful blend of capital ideas and talent. And that's that's hard to replicate, but that's what so many places have to do and, and are trying to do now is really take that culture elsewhere as opposed to really hate it. They want to be it. You know, Robin, you've, you've hit on an issue uh, that is, is a valid point also. Um, during the 90s and the first decade of 2000, uh, Silicon Valley and high tech as a whole was viewed as tech for good. And uh, we worked using Cisco as an example. I work with government leaders around the world for the legitimate concerns they had. And the power of the internet at that time was no different than the power of digitization today and social media. And yet we always found a way to work together, including with our competitors, with government, to accomplish the legitimate concerns of citizens and others. And we were the best in the world at giving back in a big way. Cisco, 7 million people trained on Cisco Network Academies, uh, a million per year when I left the, the company for jobs of the future because digitization and the internet will uh, destroy a certain amount of jobs. And we were known around the world for our corporate social responsibility. And everywhere we were number one in corporate social responsibility, we had number one market share. I think it's important that the Valley realize that some of the companies are a little bit out of touch with where this is going. And nobody in my home states of Georgia or North Carolina or West Virginia or Ohio or Indiana or Illinois wants a stipend. They want a real meaningful job and they want a chance to participate. And uh, this is something I'm trying to do in my next chapter of my life is bring that startup mentality, tie it to universities, and I intend to do something together with West Virginia University to really focus on it becoming a startup state and to be able to invest my time and my own resources giving back uh, to see if we can't do this together. Well, seize on that. Take me back to West Virginia. You were raised in West Virginia after being born in Ohio, correct? Yes. When you were nine, you were diagnosed with dyslexia. You were aided by a therapist. You learned to cope with the disability. You went on to Duke University. Um, You got a bachelor's at West Virginia University and a JD. You got your MBA at Indiana University and then lorded over at the turn of the century, the largest company in the United States by market capitalization. There is this huge explosion of coverage right now of the opioid crisis in West Virginia. You hear about that left and right. You also hear about so many people who were left behind uh, who, who, you know, didn't innovate and and they're kind of fading um, 
people worked in coal mines or other industries that have kind of disappeared and offshored. If the governor, Jim Justice, comes up to you and the senators in a very nonpartisan way, and you've been both a Republican and Democrat in your life, and said, listen, I need you to roll up your sleeves and come back to West Virginia, what are some of the ideas that you can immediately put to work in this state where, where kind of hopelessness has prevailed so much? Well, first of all, I don't think West Virginia is hopeless. We've been up and down and the people there, you know, if I ever got into trouble and had to be on the a road somewhere and I had to go up and knock on somebody's door and say, I really need help, I hope that would be in West Virginia because the odds are very high they would help me. Do they have their challenges? Yes, but you, it's easy to forget. 30, 40 years ago, we had, you know, when I was growing up, more millionaires in West Virginia than the United Kingdom had. Uh, we were the chemical center of the world and others. I think we can come back. And I think the way that I hope I'll play a small role in doing it is to do it with West Virginia University. Gordon Gee, the president there, is an amazingly good man, very visionary. Uh, the leader of the business school is very good, medical school, engineering. And perhaps if we can get startups really started, including perhaps addressing the opioid challenge and saying how do we give people a chance to participate in the future? Because lots of times, regardless of where you are in the central part of the nation or southeast, it's a feeling of I'm being left behind and I don't have a chance to participate. We need to bring startups throughout the entire nation, not just into Silicon Valley or New York or Texas, and do this on scale. So I'm going to attempt to do that. To your question about Democrats and Republicans, uh, I actually like both senators. Uh, Shelley Moore is amazingly good, and she's a Republican, uh, and candidly a friend of the family for, for many years. And if you look at Joe Manchin, even though he's a Democrat, nobody can be perfect. I say that in humor. In California, uh, I'm, there are very few Republicans to find, but Joe doesn't amazing job. And what they're doing is they're putting the politics behind them and say, let's just do what's right for the state. And that's what I, I would like to play a small role in. I'm going to take the risks there. Uh, I know that if I take the risk and it doesn't work, I'll get criticized, but that's leadership. And uh, I think it can be a model, if done right, that other states can follow to revitalize the heartline of America and make America back to what I know we can be again, which is where the vast majority of American families, regardless of where you are geography-wise, regardless of your religion, color your skin, regardless of whether you're a man or woman, believe that their children will have a better life than they do and believe that they have a chance to participate. And that's that's what I want to see occur and to perhaps play a small role with some examples on how to do it. Uh, that's what I'd like to do in my next chapter. What if somebody recruited you to run for governor? Uh, I don't like politics. Uh, if I were going to do it, and I thought very hard about 15 years ago about getting in at the state level here in California and then maybe on the national level, I like to move fast. I like Democrats and Republicans. I like just trying. I make mistakes, and Lord knows I'm far from perfect, but I like just doing the right thing, or at least what I think is the right thing at that point in time. And then secondly, I love what I'm doing in business. I mean, it's like grandkids, and Dan knows this. My pupils right now are dilated when I talk <laughs> about these 16 companies. I get to advise these young people on the direction of their company. I've seen the movies so many times, including the mistakes they're going to make. And just like children who are growing up to adults and are really starting to skill, you get such excitement out of them learning and moving with tremendous speed. I wouldn't trade anything in the world for that. So, so how do you attract excellent people into politics then? Because policy is so important at every level, isn't it? That's the that's the hard part is for good reason, people want to avoid it, I think. I think it's actually getting very dangerous. I, I think that... Uh, there are some very good people in politics on, on all political sides, Democrats and Republicans and independents. I think we've got to make it a place where people work together toward a common goal again. And I think our country always after stumbling, always gets back up on its feet and get its act back together uh, on that as well. You know, Robin, one thing I should mention that I found fascinating is that John actually predicted um, Trump winning way back in May. And so I... <laughs> I was, you were one of the few to come out and say, you know, I think this guy's going to win. I don't think you voted for him, but um, I always think it's what the sort of tea leaves were telling you at that point that made you think, okay, we're ignoring something. Well, talk here. to me about that, John, in closing, is what I could never understand is the appeal of a person who we knew, you know, Diane and I covering Trump's. Uh, travails in, in the aughts and the 90s is he was that upper, upper you know, east side, midtown, Manhattan, limousine opportunist, not nope. really a Republican, not really a Democrat. Nope, how did that, too small. Well, how did that sell pungently to the disaffected in West Virginia, where he is so popular? Well, I think it, it speaks to the whole nation. 
Uh, both the Republicans and Democrats did not stay close to their base. Both groups have said, we're going to make life better for you, but didn't deliver. Uh, both groups have said that we want you to have a standard, higher standard of living than your parents did and for your children to have the same opportunity, and yet they let down the American people. And so the issue and the reason I, in May <laughs> on CNBC, uh, when I got the question, uh, they said, who do you think is going to win? Not who are you voting for or who you're supporting. And I'd always, always supported Republicans. And I was one of John McCain's true five key advisors on his run for the presidency and a, a great friend. I miss him every day, but I think he was more the example of just do what's right for America and work with Democrats and Republicans. But what I saw was when I traveled throughout the central part of the nation, the southeast part of the nation, the Democrats had lost their base. And uh, contrary to what you're reading, a lot of college-educated people were going to vote for Trump. And then when I met an African-American limo driver and was talking with him, and he said, John, this is going to surprise you, but I'm, I'm going to vote for Trump on this, and I think it's time for a change in this country. So when I got asked in May, and I thought I could get off the show without getting asked, because I deliberately not publicly supported any candidate uh, who I thought was going to win, I said, based on the momentum, you know, uh, Trump will win. And so... What I do is I connect the dots. I have weaknesses, but I'm very good at pattern identification and I'm able to see the changes. I connected the dots with uh, now President Macron. First time I met him, I, I called up my wife and said, this is a future president of France. You could just see the makings of that. And I can connect the dots, I think, on how technology and startups can change this country for the better, but only if we have the courage to change. And that's really the point of the book. Uh, if you agree with everything I've said in that book, Robin, I have failed miserably. I want people to be a little bit uncomfortable. I want to challenge them. I want to do what Dan helped me do so well, which is tell stories and then say, here's your cliff notes at the end of each chapter on your takeaways. And uh, as I said, as a leader, I'm far from perfect, made many mistakes, and I have the scars to prove it. But I would lead again in a second. I got to see this evolution from a seat in on the playing field in a way that no one else has ever done. And I feel so honored to do that. And I was joined by my high school sweetheart, Elaine, and my two kids, John and Lindsay, and my two grandkids, Autumn and Jack, to be a part of it. And so uh, it is my family, and it's been a, an excitement that I wish I could share with others. And it's going to be what I try to do in my next chapter. And, and, I'm, and I'm so honored that you came on this fine broadcast to tell the world, in fact, predict uh, with with just unbelievable courage that Full Disclosure is going to become the next great show on public radio. And I'm just so grateful <laughs> to you for that. John yeah. Chambers and Diane Brady, co-authors of Connecting the Dots by thank you, Hatchet Books. I cannot thank you enough for coming on. It was fun. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Diane, thank you for putting up with me for 15 months. Oh, the stories you could tell of John putting up with me, but that's for another show. That's for Full Disclosure over time. <laughs> All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks, thanks, Robin. Full Disclosure. Our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to Neil Rauch at NPR New York. We are on NPR One. It's a fine app. And on iTunes, you can subscribe at fullderadio.com. Changing the world with scalable cloud-based solutions for mission-critical blockchain networks. End-to-end, B2B-to-C, full stack. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. Nice.